Agriculture can lead to a decent, respectable job. Work alone on your own terms. That's what I like. That was Palestinian student Ubaida Akram Jawabra. He was studying agriculture at a local vocational school in the occupied West Bank. I'm 15 years old and I like to cook. He had dreams of becoming a chef. I don't want to work for someone else and have him order me around. It's better to order yourself around. At least 86 Palestinian children were killed in 2021, making it the deadliest year to be a Palestinian child since 2014. And on May 17th, Obeida Jawabra was one of them. As Israel and Hamas agree to a ceasefire, we turn to look at the tragic death of one Palestinian teenager, Obeida Jawabra. As we start a new year, we're looking back at some of our most memorable stories here on The Take. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is the story of Obeida Jawabra. It's not often that we're able to hear the voices of the children killed in conflict. But Obeida's story, even before his death, was so common to Palestinians and so unknown to the rest of the world that it was the subject of a short film, simply called Obeida. The problem is Route 60 and how to cross it to go to school. Israeli military forces arrested Obeida when he was 14 years old, near his home in the occupied West Bank. And that's where this story starts. One of our senior producers, Amy Walters, worked on this episode. Hi, Malika. Hey, Amy. So why did this episode resonate with you? It's really the fact, like you said, that so many of these Palestinian kids were killed this year, much like Obeida. And there are actually more developments. This organization, Defense for Children International, Palestine, who made the film about Obeda and monitors these killings of Palestinian children, there's more that happened with them that I do want to get into at the end. But first, let's hear the story of Obeda. Right, because this is a story not just about his death, but about his life. Exactly. And... It starts with Obaida's lawyer, Farah Bayadzi. She was working for Defense for Children International when she first met Obaida. He was 14, and he'd just been arrested. I was appointed to be his lawyer, and I got to know him, and we started our trial. Do you remember meeting him? Yeah, especially him. Obaida made an impression. His spirit had something special. And he was calm, surprisingly. And because of his young age, he was 14, I was too sensitive. So, yeah, I do remember our first meeting and uh, I keep <laughs> thinking about it. Every time I think about Obeda, I imagine him as a young, very small boy facing a very big system, which is not designed to protect him or protect the Palestinian community that he comes from. Every year, hundreds of Palestinian children are arrested by the Israeli military and security forces, put in Israeli prisons, and tried in military courts. Israeli children aren't tried in the military system. 
So yeah, the charges, throwing stones. And uh, by the way, this is a very you know general and a common charge that the Palestinian children are usually accused of. I remember him him saying me that I didn't do it. Obeda was from a small refugee camp near Hebron, Al Haru. It's next to Hebron, as you said, which has a very large presence of settlers, usually, and Israeli military presence. Hebron is home to one of the first illegal Israeli settlements established in 1968. And in 1994, an Israeli American settler shot and killed 29 Palestinians in a Hebron mosque. There was also tensions in Hebron. So adding to existing tensions here in Hebron. And there was a lot of tension, especially in the city of Hebron. Tensions in this area are consistently high. The El Arub refugee camp, where Obeda lived, is just north of Hebron. Route 60, which is used by settlers, passes almost right through. The road number 60, Abayda needed to cross this road. And uh, during his arrest, he was uh, going to the supermarket. And during his walk, there was clashes between Israeli military forces and other persons from the camp. And then he was arrested and was accused of being a part of the clashes and throwing stones. What is it like to be in an Israeli prison as a 14-year-old? What did he tell you about what he faced? So I just want to say that it's important to stress that the majority of the ill treatment that happens to the Palestinian children usually happens before reaching the jail, which means that during the transportation or during the arrest itself. I was on my way to the store when they arrested me. When they took me for interrogation, they bound my hands in plastic cord. They used two of them so that I couldn't move my hands at all. My eyes were covered in a thick blindfold. It also covered my nose and made it hard to breathe. When you're walking and can't see anything, you feel dizzy. You're scared and you hesitate. The soldiers told me there were steps, but there weren't any steps, so I'd fall. And this is what typically happens. So uh, usually we document the torture and the ill-treatment by the Israeli forces during the transportation and the interrogation itself. The soldiers would beat me strategically in places that wouldn't leave marks, so there wouldn't be any evidence on my body I could use to testify against them. He reported to me that his interrogation was coercive. Usually they use violence, physical violence, verbal violence towards the children. And then even after the interrogation ends, when the child is being transported to the jail itself, even there the cells are very small. So they are being held in a more punitive model than a rehabilitation model. And also you are not allowed to have phone calls with their families, friends, anybody. And they are only allowed to have one to two visits a month. In the term of education, they don't get any, you know, really good education program. They're like limited to skills in Hebrew, Arabic and math. And uh, this interruption can have long-term effect. You mentioned that 
Arbeida would get limited time to talk to his family. What about with you and his lawyers? Was there more time to interact with your client? So me as a lawyer, when I was also visiting him in prison, this had a limited time with a last barrier between us. And the only free time that I can get with Obeda is when I see him in the court hearing and sessions. That's where I can have this human interaction. Obeda was aware of the reality that he lived in during his time in prison. I remember him being very patient and uh, I got acquitted eventually, but he was already held for two months in prison, which is a very long time. How did you manage to win that case? Obeda was innocent and he was very confident of himself. We brought the soldier that witnessed against him that he threw the stones. And there were contradictions in their sayings. And we pursued the trial until the end. Eventually, the court decided that Obeda had not committed the crime. The moment that the acquittal was announced or declared, do you remember what happened? How Obeda reacted? How you reacted? I remember having my first tattoo, so... A celebratory tattoo? Yeah, and but I remember, yeah, I remember how much Obeda was happy because eventually all the effort that we had and all the time that he spent wasn't put away. But I told him, I remember myself telling him that it's not a victory for me because at the end of the day, Obeda spent two months in prison, even if he was acquitted. My victory is when you stop arresting Palestinian children, when the Israeli occupation ends, then I will feel it as a victory. For now, it's something that I will be happy for today, but he was criminalized at the end of the day. A lot happened to me in prison, and when I left, I noticed a lot changed. I had a lot of schoolwork to catch up on. I didn't know which subjects I was going to choose. I chose a vocational school because the schoolwork had piled up. I couldn't catch up. They gave me exams for two months and I struggled a lot. Every day I had to finish a book to catch up. I started to think, why are we so different from the other children in the world? Why are we detained when you're young and made to suffer? While others are happy playing sports with many opportunities that we don't have, why are they like that and why are we like this? This day, no one can answer me. It wasn't long before Israeli military forces arrested Obeda again. And I remember the second arrest and the interrogators and the military forces were very upset because he was acquitted. He was beaten by the interrogators and that's why he confessed throwing stones and that's why he was sentenced eventually. But I must say that the interrogator himself told him word by word that this time you will pay the price of you being acquitted in your first arrest. Wow. Yeah, and eventually he was sentenced for a couple of months and he was released uh, after a couple of uh, days because there was no enough charges. So obviously he was targeted, obviously he was pursued by the system and obviously he was killed eventually. This is the reality that the Palestinian children lives under. On Monday, May 17th, Israeli forces shot Obeida on a street in the Al-Arub refugee camp. 
Witnesses say ambulances were blocked from getting near him. But eventually, he was taken to a medical facility nearby, where he was pronounced dead. When did you first hear about what happened to Abeda on May 17th? Uh, so I was watching the news when I heard about the killing in refugee Arub. I saw that someone is being killed. And I had this feeling that it might be someone of my clients. Yeah, I remember myself like looking at the news where they were sharing the ambulance um, vehicle. And I remember that someone that looks like Abeda's brother, like sitting next to the body and like crying and like uh, screaming. And I said, oh my God, it's, it, it looks like Abeda, but it cannot be Abeda. And I was, oh my God, oh my God. I was, And then I got the message, I said, oh my God, this is Abeda who was killed. And, and at that moment, I was very speechless. That gut intuition. Yes, yes. It's unbelievable to me. He had a lot of life inside of him, a lot of energy, positive energy. I don't know, but it is a shock. It is still a shock for me, for my colleagues, and for everyone who know, knew Obeida and his family. It's not something unbelievable. And unfortunately, he's not alone. Why so many young people? So yeah, as you say, that Obeida is not alone. The killing is uh, is continuing from the Israeli side, and uh, keep in mind the 500 Palestinian children that were killed during the assault on Gaza in 2014. And, the central problem is that for the Israeli forces are carrying this action in the context of impunity. There's no um, accountability for the Israeli occupation. Uh, and uh, that's, there is, on the other hand, there is a systematic impunity. So, as we've mentioned a couple of times, the Defense for Children International, who you worked for at the time you were representing Hobeida, filmed a video after he was out of jail. He was going to school, he was studying to be a chef, he was even growing his own vegetables. And there's one scene in particular where he is cooking makluba, which is a complicated dish with chicken and rice and vegetables, and you have to turn it upside down to get the perfect flip. And you're watching it, I'm watching it, and I can see this path for him between all the barriers between the jail and the Israeli occupation and the violence. He is managing to carve out a way to the future. And of course, we know in the end, he doesn't make it. For you, in reflecting on that and knowing that he's not alone and that you have other clients who are going through similar things, What's your advice to them, to your clients? What is the way forward for them? Okay, so I think that I can direct my advice to those responsible for ensuring the children's rights and uh, safety. For example, state parties, rather than advising the children themselves. We have to remember that children like Obeda it shouldn't be their responsibility to to figure out how to avoid getting shot or being killed or bombed or being arrested. 
in the occupation, uphold international law, especially the Convention of the Rights of the Child. Obeida had the opportunity to share life under occupation in the refugee camp. You can see how much challenges and how much it is hard to be living there as a child. We need more hands and more hearts to speak up for Obeida's case and for the Obeidas everywhere. We need to honor his life and his memory by speaking up against this injustice all over Palestine by the Israeli forces. So my advice is to give those Palestinian children the opportunity to build their future and to reach and to fulfill their dreams. Beautifully said. Thank you for that. And I, I love how you redirected the question because it is not for the children to learn how to live within an unjust system. It's for the people who made the unjust system to ensure that they protect children. Exactly. It's, it's not their responsibility. They are only children at the end of the day. So we originally published that story in May, and I'm joined now with our senior producer, Amy Walters, again, about a few things that have happened since then. So yeah, a month or two after this aired, I got an email from Defense for Children International. And let me just read it to you. It says, early this morning, around 5 a.m., Israeli paramilitary border police broke into Defense for Children International Palestine's headquarters in Ramallah. The Israeli military invaded our office and confiscated some PCs and laptops and some files. This is Ayed Abu Taish, one of the directors at Defense for Children International. And they go away uh, without putting even a piece of paper to inform us that they invaded the office. Wow. And that was in the summer. Then in October, something else happened. Now, Israel has designated six Palestinian civil society groups as terror organizations, accusing them of funneling money to an armed group. On Friday, the 22nd of October, Israel's defense minister, Benny Gantz, issued a military order accusing DCIP and five other groups of being terrorist organizations, linking them to the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. We don't believe documenting the Israeli violations committed against Palestinian children is terrorist behavior. It's clear that these are false allegations. There is nothing that can be expected from the Israeli authorities. They can do anything to suppress and control people who are living under occupation. Everything is possible. And right now, we do not know the consequences in the future. They may arrest somebody, despite the fact that the group was groundless and has no foundation. And around the time this came out, there was a flurry of articles. And one of the most interesting was from the Israeli news site 972 and The Intercept. It was a partnership. I spoke with a reporter, Yuval Abraham, who got access to the documents Israel was sending around to other countries supporting the new designation. And I was shocked by the documents because in all of the pages, there is no concrete proof 
these human rights organizations that have been working for tens of years, claiming that they're terror organizations, a very, very serious claim. And there was no evidence to sustain that claim in these documents that we uncovered. And there are a couple of reasons Yuval thinks the organizations are being targeted. They're working to collect evidence for Israeli war crimes, and they're accusing Israel of these war crimes at the international court in The Hague. Just a reminder, Gantz, who put out this declaration initially, is one of those who could be charged. So for me, it seems very clear that when Benny Gantz is accused in The Hague of committing war crimes, he has even a personal interest to to hunt down these organizations that are accusing him. And Ayad at DCIP had the same feeling, but it didn't sound like it's going to stop them. As a child rights organization, we believe that some practices of uh, the Israeli army amount to war crimes and crimes against humanity. So we provide all the information that we get from the field to the International Criminal uh, Court, and we participate in their efforts to bring the uh, Israeli officials uh, before this court. Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and other groups have also spoken out against this designation, along with Ireland, a few European countries. A group of UN human rights experts asked the international community to urge Israel to review and reverse the decision, but there hasn't been a massive response. As far as what's next, Ayad says that still depends on the rest of the world. It depends on the reaction of the international community to this uh, decision. If they rejected it, I think Israel will not repeat it again. But if it passed, uh, this time they will repeat it. And it will affect how Israel will behave in the future. At the end of December, the Israeli ambassador to the UN sent a letter to the Secretary General asking that they end all cooperation with these organizations. Thanks for the update, Amy. Thank you, Malika. And that's The Take. This episode was updated by Amy Walters and Ruby Zaman, and originally produced by Amy Walters, with Priyanka Tilbey, Nagin Oliai, Alexandra Locke, Ney Alvarez, Tina Kispe, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Benton is our story editor. Aya Elmireik is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. A special thank you to Defense for Children International in Palestine for allowing us to use their documentary about Obeida Jawabra. You can find it on YouTube. It's simply called Obeida. And to the filmmaker Matthew Castle for his help with this episode. Karim Duwaji also helped as the voice of Obeida. We'll be back.